morning. And uh, well, thank you so much for the invitation to uh, come back. Let's just raise this a little bit. On a very, very hot day. <laughs> um, at Yardley Baptist Church, where I would otherwise be this morning, uh, we've actually got uh, today a potential minister is, is preaching. It's quite early days, and you above, above all know what it's like. <laughs> Uh, the uncertainties of the journey of looking for a, for a minister, I realise that. But just to say that I'm praying for both churches, praying for Alton and for Yardley, that, that God leads the right um, ministry to you at the right moment. Um, but actually, at my work, we're also in the hunt for a minister. So um, my boss, Andy Hughes, who leads the ministries team at the Baptist Union of Great Britain, has just announced he's leaving. And it's quite a tough job, actually, to, um, to quite big shoes to fill. So um, as I pray for you and your situation looking for a minister, uh, I'd appreciate your prayers for, for us in the ministries team as we also look for a, a senior minister to come in and be in charge of the ministries team. Well, <coughs> let me just... This is my prop hanger. Let me just move that there. There we go. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9. Now, uh, we're concentrating particularly on uh, verse 19 to 27. If you've got Bibles, it would be great if you kind of have them open because we might, might be helpful for you. I guess it's, it's pretty easy to see why this, this passage has been chosen. I, I know that you're working through a theme, as Benisa said, on the, on the Commonwealth Games. You've been praying into that. I think you've got one or two people uh, involved in, in helping at the Games. Is that right in some way? I don't know whether any of us are competing in the Games. <laughs> Uh, you know, Bill in the marathon maybe, or yeah, and Benice on the high jump. Um, <laughs> no more likely than me in the weightlifting, believe me. It's, not, it's just not going to happen. Um, but if you were a competitor, would you be here this morning? Or would you actually be out there doing some last minute training, even in the heat of the day? You might be, because that's what it takes to win. Perhaps if you were a competitor, you'd be out there right now, sweating away in the sun. You'd be in strict training, as Paul calls it. So here we go, prop number one, my pair of running shoes. You'd be out there pounding the pavement or, or whatever it may be on the running track, uh, trying to get ready and fit and good enough to win a race. Because this passage we've got before us does seem to be about uh, training and preparation, doesn't really paint a picture of enjoyment, does it, actually? Let's be honest. Paul talks about his faith as running a race, and he says to be competitive in a race, you have to go into strict training. He says he strikes a blow to his body in order to make it his slave. So his language is about self-discipline and endurance and effort and trying hard and pushing oneself. And if we were elite athletes... Well, we would understand what he, what he meant. Um, Paul says only one person gets a prize, and you've got to train seriously hard to be that person. It's that time of year, by the way, where, um, uh, you know, do not disturb me between 7 and 8 in the evening, because that's when I'm glued to the TV for three weeks to watch the highlights of the Tour de France, the, the daily stage of the Tour de France. And every day, you get a glimpse of the life of an elite athlete, and it, the, the, it is written on their faces as they're working their way up some horrific climb, trying to retain or get a lead on others. And though the race, race is um, three weeks long, uh, 
Every day's stage is a race in itself. And to win just one stage of the Tour de France, you probably know, is, is an enormous achievement. And you will have it on what they call your palmares. You'll have it on your list of achievements forever and a day. You were a winner of a Tour de France stage. But there's no prize for second place. If you watch the highlights, you always see the winner of the stage and they're standing there on the podium and they get their garland and they get their interview and they get their moment of fame. The person who comes second, they're back down to the hotel to try and recover and weep that they missed uh, the, the, the top slot, sometimes by the, you know, the width of a tyre, sometimes. Only the uh, first rider over the line gets the prize. One racer's misfortune is the eventual winner's gain. The winner takes all. And to be in with a chance of a prize, clearly the training is ridiculous, doesn't it? whether it's a Tour de France or whether it's, um, whether it's the Commonwealth Games. I mean, what you have to do? To be Tour de France ready in July, you, you've got to start preparing soon after Christmas, if not, if not before. Uh, you've got to ride distance until you can ride no more. You've got to do interval training for the sprints until you're sick. You've got to sleep in a hypoxic chamber which is where the oxygen level is reduced so that your body is acclimatised for the altitude of the high mountains. And that's to say nothing of the crashes and the injuries that come with the territory. You know, training to win the race, it's really not for the faint-hearted. And neither, suggests Paul, is training for uh, faith. Run, he says, in such a way as to win the prize. So what props have we got here? Well, first of all, there's a, there's a cycling journey. There's my, uh, there's my Tour de France uh, illustra illustration. And here's, here's, well, this is actually Ali's. Let's just put that on. This is uh, <laughs> one of Ali's running medals. So, you know, if you want to compete, you've got to go into strict training. Run as if you're going to win the prize. And Paul actually says, in fact, it's worse for us than it is for an elite athlete. And their prize is temporary. It will not last. In fact, what Ali mostly has, the, she has um, a whole kind of cabinet full of these, these wretched glass trophies. Um, I think we've already broken one. You know, the prize will not last. And of course, when Paul is writing, the prize for a race would have been a, a laurel wreath, which, which within a week or two has, has dried out and withered. It does not last. But Paul says the prize we are in training for lasts forever. It's eternal. So I don't know about you, but in this sweltering July day, when I read 1 Corinthians 9, I'm already beginning to feel the heat. Self-discipline, endurance, pushing oneself, beating your body to make it your slave. I wonder what you feel about those verses. I wonder whether Paul, I wonder whether he ever relaxed. I mean, Paul does come across as pretty driven, doesn't he? What did he do to relax? A round of golf? <laughs> Bit of baking, because he enjoyed it? Afternoon with a good book? I don't know. Paul seems to be very focused. He says he doesn't run aimlessly. He doesn't set out for a little jog. He doesn't shadow box. He doesn't just kind of punch the air in vain. No, he's running in earnest, and he's fighting hard. And before we just think about what this means for us, can I just say that depending on your personality and on your circumstances, this reading might not sit very well with you at this moment. Can I just say that? 
For some, this message of striving and training and discipline may feed something within you which is quite unhealthy. Um, I'm quite driven, not as much as I was, but I'm still quite driven. I'm driven to improve things. I'm driven to do things right. I'm, <laughs> I'm driven to be seen to be competent. And it's been, and it will continue to me, to be, I'm sure, a lifetime's challenge to learn to let things go and to be kinder on myself. There can be an unhealthy obsession with training and with beating the body, as Paul calls it. It can become all-consuming if you have a certain personality. And in Christian language, it means you become legalistic. It means you must do your Bible reading every day. Otherwise, you'll be punished. It means you, you must pray and pray. Either bad will happen. You know, you, it's, it's almost a superstition that enters our faith. So there's a danger here for some personalities. And, and, and there's also, not just because your personality, but maybe your circumstances. You may feel right now that, you, to be honest, you're running hard just to stand still. Every one of us at the moment has been through a pandemic and we continue to live with the effects of that pandemic rolls on doesn't it and the demands of work and family and the need to do more with less and then of course there's church which is another burden and then there are family issues and illness and whatever else may come and maybe you're running hard to stand still and perhaps the last thing you need is another message about trying harder so can we just acknowledge that for some people this might sit uncomfortably with us? And that's okay. That's okay. God knows who we are and where we're at. But, nevertheless, the metaphor does stand. The Christian life, it can't be developed without a measure of practice and effort. A Christian understanding of the world and a Christian way of being in the world you can't kind of instantaneously upload it to your mind, like Trinity learning to fly a helicopter. You know, that sort of thing doesn't work. The Christian life takes practice and training and diligence and discipline, and you might wish it to be otherwise, but that is as it is. So what's worth looking at then is what Paul is training for. And I think, in fact, there's actually a bit of ambiguity in this passage. And it, the answer depends on whether you look at the verses after the passage we've read or whether you look at the verses before the passage we've read. Or maybe uh, we need to look at both. Let's just get rid of that. It's annoying me. So if you read the final verse of, uh, of, of our reading, verse 27 of chapter 9... Um, and then you go on into chapter 10, Paul seems to be training for resilience. He, he's training so that he never has to abandon the race. He's, he's training in order to reach the end goal. Now, I don't want to go too deep into this because I think this is a topic for next week for when John is preaching about finishing well. But if you read on into chapter 10, it becomes clear that whilst Paul is focusing on his calling in his everyday life he always has one eye on the finishing line and he gives a warning to his readers when in chapter 10 he refers to the Israelites escaping Egypt that's what he goes on to in chapter 10 and he says look they all saw the pillar of cloud that went before them they all passed through the Red Sea that opened in front of them 
They all ate of the miraculous manna that landed around them, and they all drank from the rock, from the water that gushed from the rock to refresh them. And yet they still rebelled, and they still displeased God, and they did not see the promised land. Paul in chapter 10 says their bodies lie scattered in the wilderness. In other words, they never made it. Whereas Paul, well in verse 27, he says that he wants to preach the gospel and then not be disqualified. So yeah, no doubt he wanted to see the miracles like um, the Israelites saw the miracles. No doubt he wants to lead his people through the waters, I guess through the waters of baptism in his case. But when he's done all that, he wants not to fall at the last. That is why he's training hard. He trains hard to finish well. And in chapter 10, verse 12, he makes it clear. He says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And, and the point worth noting here, again, particularly for all those of you who are working hard to, to put on activities at, at, at Alton Baptist Church and whatever else it may be, it's worth noting that finishing the race well does not come through service. It's not Paul's amazing preaching or his planting of many churches or his constant missionary journeys. That does not get him over the finish line. I think it's diligence in the small things. It's diligence to stay pure. It's diligence to avoid idolatry, whatever that looks like in our modern day. It's diligence to avoid immorality. It's, it's plain old temptation. It's plain old drifting away that causes us the problem now. So I wonder for you, what does diligence in the simple things look like? What are the habits that fuel your Christian walk for the long haul? Well, maybe your Christian race, maybe it's a run. What are the steps you take to avoid temptation? Never mind what you do for the church. Forget all that for the moment. Never mind what you do to evangelize your neighbors and your friends. Never mind all that for the moment. How do you exercise spiritual self-care? So my job is to encourage Baptist ministers to practice continuing ministerial development, or CMD. And the strapline is CMD, Sustaining Ministerial Wellbeing and Capability. So yes, it's about capability. Of course, we want ministers to do a good job, but it's also about well-being. It is also about encouraging ministers to exercise that self-care and to look after, first and foremost, that walk with God, however extraordinary or ordinary their ministry might be. So, uh, sorry to make you do this, but I just want you to take a couple of minutes with a person or people just next to you or around you and just share together what are the habits that fuel you for the long haul in your Christian life and if you haven't got any then you might want to be honest about that and if it's a bit awkward to talk about this stuff well hey there we go uh, being honest about ourselves always is what are the good habits and the pitfalls what enables us to walk well and to keep going the simple things not the grand projects the daily things the simple things just have a chat with each other to be brave enough to uh, share anything with all of us? Any top tips? Anything that's kept you going in the long haul?
Okay, thank you, Aaron. So Bible reading, and particularly the promises of God, leaning on the promises of God. Thank you. Anyone else? Being thankful, yes. Retaining a habit of gratitude, <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't, we don't, we don't return to moaning quickly. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Rob. Yes. Ongoing prayer in whatever way works for you. Yeah, thank you. So many different ways of praying. Yeah, we need to know what, uh, what is a helpful habit for you. One or two more? Yeah, accountability. So have you got someone who will say, how are how, things going? And particularly, you know, how are things going in your, in your walk with God as well as how's a family and how's a job and those sorts of things that we always ask each other. Yeah. Okay, I, I just wonder, maybe... This is the sort of sermon that can burden people with guilt. Okay, you know, work hard, self-discipline. Just maybe just think of, take away today or think later on today, just one thing. You know, don't try and reinvent your life. Is there just one thing that you need to get back to? Maybe a, a habit that was helpful that you could perhaps pick up again? One thing you might want to try that you've not tried before? One thing that might enable you just to keep going in the long haul? Nothing grand. One thing. So there you go. That's the first reason Paul trains hard. It's to finish the race, regardless of what his ministry is. And I think that's the most important thing, that we just pay attention to our relationship with Jesus in the everyday. But if we look at the verses before the passage, I think we get a slightly different answer. And I just want to look at those now. The rest of chapter 9, the early part of chapter 9, which we didn't read, what we discover here is not that Paul is training hard just to finish well in the future, but of course he's training hard for his ministry in the present. That, that is also, of course, important. You see, I said that in verse 27, um, the last verse we read at the end of the chapter, where he talks about making his body a slave. It's very graphic language. And uh, again, it's very familiar language. I'm sure if you're an elite athlete, you are really trying to rule your body, aren't you? And it's kind of mind over, uh, mind over matter. But the slavery language in verse 27 actually picks up what he's already said in verse 19. In verse 19 he says, Though I am free and belong to no person, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So uh, I, I think we have some interesting mixed metaphors here. Paul says he wants to win the race and win the prize and so he trains, but he also talks about winning other people. So we see that ultimately, his prize is not his own glorification and fame, and you know, look at me, fantastic, I'm on the podium, uh, but it's actually the salvation of others. Winning for him is that others win their salvation. So his race is not focused just on his own grandeur, but it's a race to serve others well. And for this purpose, he trains hard to gain an audience. So, two hats. Hopefully I'll stay on here. One, this is, this is my running hat. If it's hot, day like this or whatever, maybe not. But it's good to keep the sun out the eyes. And needless to say, my cycling helmet. Two hats, okay? Two different sports, two different disciplines. Paul says to the Jews, 
he becomes like a Jew, and to the Gentiles, he becomes like a Gentile. To the weak, he becomes weak. He becomes all things to all people in order to save as many people as possible. So what Paul is saying is he doesn't just stumble through life just being who he is and, hey, you know, hopefully some of this will rub off on somebody else. Paul is much more intentional than that. He seems to ask, how can I behave and interact in this context that I am in right now in order to make the gospel credible for the people that is surrounding me, whoever they may be, whether they're Jew or whether they're Gentile. And if you read back through the rest of chapter 9, you actually find he gives an example. He says, um, uh, well, he, he makes a case, first of all, for being paid for what he does. So just as a soldier gets paid by the army and a, a, a farmer eats of the, of the crop that they grow, so he says a preacher and a pastor ought to be paid by those they preach to or they pastor. So the people they minister to pay for their upkeep. Now that's a sensible principle, and it's one that I've benefited from here. For seven years, you paid me. Thank you, that was great. But Paul says he doesn't ask for money, not from the Corinthian church. He said, look, I'm entitled to it. Everyone should be paid, you know, work is worth his wages and the rest of it. But he doesn't ask for money from them. He doesn't take his entitlement. Why? because he doesn't want it to hinder the gospel. He doesn't want people to say, oh, that Paul, he only comes to us and preaches to us in order to extract money from us and look like the big preacher and be the big person and the big man. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't want anybody to say that. He wants to be beyond reproach and uh, beyond accusation. So he sacrifices his rights for the sake of the gospel. That is the self-discipline and the training, I think, that he is talking about when he talks about running the race and training hard. That's what I think he may be talking about when he says he beats his body. He suspends his rights and his material comfort, in this case, a lack of money, if it will help him win others for Christ. And I think we can see that elsewhere, actually, in Paul's life. So, Acts chapter 16, for example. Paul meets a young disciple called Timothy. And he says, oh, this is a good guy. I want to take Timothy with me when I go travelling. But when Paul arrives in a new town or city, the first thing he does is go to the synagogue where the Jews meet. Taking Timothy with him to the synagogue is problematic because Timothy is half Jewish. His mother's a Jew, his father's a Greek, but Timothy is not circumcised. Now, we know from what Paul has written that circumcision spiritually means nothing. Uh, It's it's, it's not not, not a bad thing, but it's not a necessary thing. It's a neutral thing. And yet, Paul circumcises Timothy. Why? Because he doesn't want to go to the synagogues with an uncircumcised person because the Jews would kick up a fuss about that and it would simply hinder the gospel. So he, he, he becomes like a Jew in order to reach the Jews. Well, well, Paul doesn't. Timothy has to. It's a bit unfair, isn't it? But there you go. You, you get the point. The principle stands. He, uh, Timothy, in this case, becomes like a Jew in order to reach the Jews. And, and what he does is, is again, you know, morally, spiritually neutral. It doesn't matter one way or the other. To become like the law, to, sorry, but to those under the law, I become like one under the law. But then he says, to those not having the law, I become like one not having the law. Now, that doesn't mean to say he goes off, you know, carousing and blaspheming all over the place. What it means is he tries to adopt the attitude and the habits that are most helpful for the sake of the audience he's trying to reach. So if you go from chapter 16 in Acts to chapter 17, you get another little example. Paul goes to Athens. 
And yet, first of all, he goes to the synagogue like normal and speaks to the Jews. But it says he also goes to the marketplace and he starts to debate with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And then, because I think, oh, this guy's interesting, what on earth is he talking about? He gets invited to the Areopagus, which is like the Athenian ruling council. And there, Paul preaches a sermon to the philosophers and the councillors that are gathered. And he said, as I walked around Athens, I saw an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. I am here to proclaim to you today what you previously believed to be unknown. And he preaches Jesus. So he leans on the skills of rhetoric and debate and argument to reach the Greeks. So Paul abides by the, the rule of the synagogue, if you like, the running hat perhaps, when he's with the Jews. And he abides by the rule of the Areopagus, the cycling helmet perhaps when he wants to reach the Greeks. He wears different hats on his head according to the context. And I don't think he's being untrue to himself. I think he's simply saying, what in this place will enable the gospel to be heard? He adapts his message to his circumstance. So if you keep with the athletic image for a moment, um, and I need to introduce one more prop here, um, Paul is sort of like the Dame Sarah story of the ancient Christian world. So there we go, there's a there's a pair of swimming goggles. For those of you who are unaware, Dame Sarah's story has no fewer than 12, 12 Paralympic gold medals in cycling. 12 gold medals in cycling. But she won those 12 gold medals after she had won 16 Paralympic medals in swimming. So Sarah's story, I don't know whether you know, she uh, won medals, gold medals in uh, last year's um, Olympics, and she's been winning medals, I think, since 1994, was it two, whichever was the Olympic year. Just racking up the medals, two different disciplines, and you can bet she, she has had to train incredibly hard for both, adapting to the circumstances. For the swimming pool, she became a swimmer, and for the road and track, she became a cyclist. So how does this apply to us? How do you train for sharing the gospel? Well, I'm not sure I have an easy answer to that one. I guess for each of us, first of all, we have to work out what is our calling? Who is it that God is asking us to reach? Where has God put us? Who are the people we have been placed among? Is it work? Is it family? Is it friends? Is it a hobby? Is it a place where you go to meet people? Is it the pub? Is it wherever? And it may be that the culture you find yourself in is, is uh, very familiar to you and you don't particularly have to train for it, but most of us probably do have to think, how can the gospel be effective in this place? And there probably are techniques and helps and ideas that can enable you to be a better sharer of the gospel in those places. And I'd just like to point out that we've got Paul and Leslie in the congregation from Agape, and Agape is probably the leading organisation in the UK providing tools in order to help people share their faith. So I'm sure there are ideas. What's the name of the course? Um, the guy that I met at the assembly, Leslie. Living and Telling, a course which enables you, I think, to be uh, an effective uh, sharer of the gospel. Maybe it's something um, you want to think about running or doing. But I also want to say that I think this is a key question for a church community and not just for us as individuals. There is this thing in every church how does this church, how does Alton Baptist Church, learn what we need to learn or train in or do in order to reach this community? 
Now, clearly, you've got some previous here, haven't you? <laughs> this is a bit awkward for me because I was minister. But, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say, hey, look at what we did in the old days. But I just want to make the point that when we did Sunday Out, uh, uh, we, we trained for it. You know, we, we abandoned our service once a month to go and do things in the community once a month. We had a whole sermon series about it. We, we established over church meetings a number of values that would be appropriate to all the groups. Uh, we gathered all the leaders of all the groups together. We uh, spoke to individuals who were concerned about the whole project. We trained for it, and we actually got ready, prepared, and went for it. And I'm not saying that Sunday Out is, is what you need to do now at all. But what is it? It will be something. And I'm not actually saying that you need to work that out right now. Maybe that's not the moment. Maybe now is not the moment for Alton to do that. But at some point, it's a good thing to do again. And to return to that question, how contextually can we train to be the best possible sharers of the gospel in this place where we are? Which could be Alton or, again, it could be that sense of how do we train each other to be the sharers of the gospel in uh, the places we are in the week. What does the race look like for you? Not just the race to survive, but the race to reach out. So you need to think about that when the time is right to do so and have the conversation. I hope you will. But just one thing for you. So this is my, this is my, little, my little tip for today, which you can ignore if you wish. And uh, we talked about running. I know about running. We talked about cycling. I can bore you for ages about cycling. Talked about swimming. I don't really enjoy swimming. I can only do breaststroke. I can stay afloat. That's about it. But let me talk about a sport about which I know nothing. And that's rugby. And I think that's the one with the oval ball, isn't it? <laughs> Kindly provided by Bill. Thank you, Bill, for giving me a rugby ball today. Um, now, I heard this recently. Uh, um, this might just be helpful for us. Yeah, one thing I do know about rugby is that you get five points for a try and two points for a conversion. That is correct, isn't it, Bill? Yeah, I'm right on that, okay? So, in a conversion, two points, one person boots the ball over the bar and between the posts. One kick, job done, two points. Whereas a try, five points, takes a whole team, usually anyway, to craft an attack and to work their way up the pitch. They can't, they can't even pass the ball forward. I mean, how rubbish is that? Everyone has to play their part, whether it's in the line of the scrum or the defence or wherever it is on the pitch. Progress is hard won, and it comes only when a team has worked together in training. And I can't help but wonder, when we are preaching Jesus today, whether we need to look more for the try than for the conversion. And uh, there's some work to do here about the language. It's interesting using the word of conversion here, isn't it? Because, yes, it is still the case that some people do have a sudden moment of realisation. They hear a sermon, they have an incredible experience, they have a conversation with someone and it all changes, the lights go on and they become a Christian. But I want to suggest that is these days quite rare. And in actual fact, most people are passed from person to person up the pitch until it's touched down over the line. And that team is you. And they are loved up the pitch, gradually. Pass from person to person. Everyone counts. Everyone's in the team. So that there is consistent love and welcome and inclusion 
and delight in that person when they encounter every single person in this church. So uh, I just wonder whether rugby is a good illustration of how we need to do evangelism today. It requires us all to be trained. It doesn't require us to look to the one or two people who can boot the person over the bars. It needs, I think, a more subtle, crafted and uh, intentional teamwork from all of us. So I'll leave that with you, maybe useful, maybe not. May OBC, through its, uh, through its welcome and patient inclusion of others, try hard for the try. Not sure that's a good way to end, but we'll end there.